We, uh, as we begin this new ministry year in the fall here, we start a new series today in the Gospel of Luke, and Jesus in the Kingdom. And our scripture reading uh, starts in uh, chapter 4, verses 14 through 30, but also I sort of, part of that chapter at the end, uh, verses 42 through 44. So hear God's word to us this morning from the Gospel of Luke. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And Jesus said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your own hometown as well. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elisha uh, when the heavens were open up for three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but to, only to the Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and they drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went on. He went away. And then skipping ahead in the chapter. And when it was day, Jesus departed and he went to a desolate place and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. The word of the Lord. Lord, we ask that you, um, you come into our midst today through your word give us a sense of your kingdom. Uh, May um, something of the same reality of Jesus' presence make itself felt to us today as we uh, grapple with the meaning of his gospel and kingdom for us. So wherever we find ourselves in relationship to your kingdom, Lord, may you draw us in by the person of your Son. In his name we pray. Amen. Now, this scene in the beginning uh, uh, of chapter 4 is it's 
kind of an agenda-setting theme for the Gospel of Luke, for the ministry of Jesus. And what we do is we learn that Jesus' ministry has already begun in Galilee to great applause and fanfare. You know, it says that people glorified him. Everything seems to be going well until he arrives in his hometown of Nazareth. And as was his custom, he goes into the synagogue and he, he uh, reads from the scriptures and offers uh, comment and teaching on it. And on this occasion, he reads from a very familiar passage, um, Isaiah 61. This is our sacred reading. Part of that is our sacred reading. And after reading, he rolls up the scroll, hands it back to the attendant, and then sits down. And you can imagine, you know, um, everybody's waiting. What will he say? <laughs> and then he says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, we don't know what else Jesus might have said. Likely he did say something, but we don't have a record of it. And initially, uh, his words and his presence in the synagogue in his hometown is well-received. It's, very, it's very enthusiastically received, it's, uh, impressed by his gracious words. But then something changes. The mood and the atmosphere begins to change. And there's a lot going on here in terms of what the reasons are. But at the heart of the reasons is um, something about why Jesus isn't performing any miracles. I mean, the people have heard that Jesus performed all these great miracles in Capernaum and all these places. And, and the exchange between Jesus and the people really kind of centers on the fact that he he doesn't do any miracles here in, in Nazareth. And so um, they, there's an exchange of words. Things escalate. And the people become so enraged with wrath that they drive Jesus out of town and they try to throw him off a cliff. <laughs> they try to kill him. How is that for a hometown reception, right? <laughs> I mean, you would have thought that if there was any place in Israel that would have been in Jesus' corner in terms of his ministry, it would have been his hometown of Nazareth, right? This should have been a safe space, but in fact, it seems to be the very opposite. Now, this, this scene raises all kinds of questions for us. Um, you know, what is it that exactly that triggered these people to become so upset to the point that they're willing to kill Jesus? But also, why does Luke choose this story as kind of his, as we know, we're in chapter 4, but, but this is the kind of opening scene for Jesus' public ministry as an adult. It, it's an agenda-setting, kind of programmatic uh, scene. And why does Luke choose it? I mean, there, I mean, we already know that Jesus has been doing ministry, um, and there's all kinds of success stories, no doubt, Luke could have, you know, uh, drawn from where, where Jesus isn't rejected or hated but actually warmly embraced. So why aren't those the highlight of Jesus's ministry? Um, I think that Luke begins this way as a kind of cautionary note to us as readers. The gospel is good news. It is the most amazing, the most incredible good news that you could possibly imagine. But it is also the kind of good news that, that brings with it lots of disruption it's the kind of news that's good that's actually hard to fully receive and accept into our lived experience of the world. It doesn't fit nicely or neatly. 
Again, if there was one place in all of Israel <laughs> that should have, the gospel and Jesus should have fit, it was, it's his hometown of Nazareth. It should have been a natural habitat, right, for, for Jesus to be received. But it's not. It's violently rejected there. And I think the point is this. This is a really important point. The gospel doesn't have a hometown. The gospel of the kingdom of God doesn't have a hometown. It exists in profound tension with every culture, with every age, with every society, um, every context. It doesn't have a hometown. You know, I think some that we often think, well, if Jesus came today, 2022, in the United States, well, we know for sure he'd be rejected in the big cities, you know, liberal, progressive, secular, blue state kinds of places. But I think what the story of, of Nazareth actually shows us too is that, well, that is true. He'd be accepted as, in some places strangely as well in those contexts. But if Jesus came today, you know what? He'd also be rejected in small town America, rural, conservative, suburban places, Christian places, right? Places we think of as Christian in America, friendly to the gospel. The reality is this, the gospel doesn't have a hometown. It's because its, its origins are heavenly. If there's one thing I think this dispute, in the framing of this dispute as a kind of story we have to go through before we get to the rest of Jesus' ministry, what it teaches us is, is that the gospel of the kingdom cannot be domesticated. It cannot be domesticated. Now, some of you uh, may have heard that our family recently got a dog, uh, a puppy. I, I, I had promised myself and a couple of you that I wasn't going to use any dog illustrations, but this is just too perfect. Anyway, so we have a puppy. We got six weeks old and back in July, and so we're in full, full mode, puppy mode, right, as a, as a family. What we're trying to do is we're trying to house train the dog. This includes uh, keeping her from peeing on the rug, um, chewing the ends off the coffee table, and then biting children in the neighborhood. Um, and all these things happen still today. What we're trying to do is we're trying to domesticate the dog so that she can be a well-behaved member of the household. Right? That's part of dog training. Now, this is a good thing when it comes to pets, but it is not a good thing when it comes to the gospel. The gospel of the kingdom cannot be house-trained, can't be domesticated, it can't be naturalized. It can't be nationalized. It can't be nativized. <laughs> it can't be any of those things. No nationality, no people group, no can own the gospel. And yet, I think the temptation of the church in every age is precisely this. Like, it is to domesticate. <laughs> we are always trying to domesticate because... What we're, trying, we're always instinctually seeking a kind of a truce and a peace between the unruly claims, the demanding claims of the gospel of the kingdom and our own lives and context. And part of what I think happened in Nazareth is that the people of that town, which were, were just faithful Jews, small town, you know, idyllic sort of worshipers, Jesus comes in with his message and there's a sense of how disruptive it might be to their comfortable, nice, religiously upright lives. It will turn things upside down. We don't like living with this tension and the disruption of the gospel. 
There's all kinds of ways that we, we try to reduce this tension and domesticate the gospel. But I, I just want to mention one that I think is really particularly our, where we're going to be most tempted. And it's, it's, we do this through a process of miniaturization. We miniaturize the gospel. To miniaturize something is to make it small, right? It's to take something that's life-sized and it's to shrink it into a figurine that you can set on a shelf. And see, when we shrink the gospel, by shrinking the gospel, what we do is we make it manageable in our lives. And this is a natural temptation for us. But the reality is this. As Jesus shows us, the gospel is not small. It can't be miniaturized. As the people of Nazareth discovered, firsthand, the gospel, when it comes to town, rugs get stained, coffee tables get chewed up, and people get bit. It is not domesticated. We can't miniaturize the gospel because the gospel is the size of a kingdom. The gospel is kingdom-sized. The gospel isn't simply the announcement of how a person, after they die, can go to heaven. The gospel isn't simply the announcement of how to be a good person or a happy person. It's not simply the announcement of how to make the world a better place. The gospel is an announcement of the kingdom of God. So, one of the most important ways that we undomesticate the gospel in our lives is by understanding it against the backdrop of God's kingdom. Because the kingdom of God is the context for the gospel. So, um, today we start this series in the gospel of Luke and uh, we will be in particular focusing on Jesus' ministry and the meaning of the kingdom of God. Luke's a long gospel. We're not going to cover all of it, but we're going to take a path through that gospel um, that focuses on the kingdom. And the kingdom of God is something that all the gospel writers uh, refer to as part of Jesus' ministry, but Luke, more than any other, uh, highlights the prominence of the kingdom of God in Jesus' ministry. He has over 30 references to it just in the gospel of Luke. To understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus, you have to understand the kingdom. And so that's kind of, you know, that's the big picture goal of the series and then kind of the introduction today. But before we go back to our text and look a little bit more carefully at, at Jesus' good news of the gospel, um, I want to just reflect for a moment on this idea of this category, kingdom of God. Kingdom of God, what does it mean? Now, at one level, the kingdom of God is, is pretty straightforward and easy to understand. It simply means... God's rule, God's reign, God's authority in the world. That's, that's what it is. Um, it's not a phrase that you encounter in the Old Testament. Um, kingdom of God is not something you, you really, I think there's only a few instances of it. Nevertheless, the idea is everywhere. And the idea is simply that God is the king of Israel. God is the true king of Israel. Not only is the, but as the creator God, God is actually the king and sovereign of the whole universe and creation itself. And so when we talk about the kingdom of God, we're really just talking about God's rule and authority and reign within creation in the world. But when you move past that sort of basic definition and you start asking for specifics, things get kind of complicated. So, okay, so that's God's rule and reign, but does, is the kingdom of God attached to any particular territory or geographic location or people or institution? Um, 
Or is the kingdom of God a spiritual reality, an immaterial reality? Or is, is the kingdom of God, is it present right now? Or is it something in the future that's still coming? Or is it both? And if it's both, then how does that work, right? What's the relationship between the kingdom of God and the church? Are they one and the same thing? Is what the church does equal kingdom? How are they related to one another? And is it possible for us to act on the kingdom, to do kingdom things? What is our relationship to the kingdom? See, there's all these questions. When you actually start trying to pull it apart, things get really uh, complicated very quickly. And the kingdom, we're confronted with the mystery and a kind of elusiveness of the kingdom of God. And so I want to draw your attention in particular, um, and I, I, as a Bible study for you, if you're interested, uh, pull up your Bible app or whatever thing you use and just type in kingdom of God and just read the different phrases of how Jesus talks about the kingdom of God in the Gospels in particular. I want to share some of, the, some of the words and verbs that Jesus uses to describe the kingdom, just to kind of help you get a sense of how sort of mysterious the kingdom is. So the, the kingdom of God, most frequently, Jesus says, is proclaimed. It's talked about. He proclaims the kingdom. He's come to proclaim the kingdom. But it's possible to enter the kingdom. But to enter the kingdom, Jesus says, you have to enter like a child. All right? Uh, we're told to seek the kingdom. We're called, as we saw in our, our reading um, of confession, to repent in the light of the kingdom. Jesus will often talk about how the kingdom has come upon us or the kingdom is among us. He talks about the secrets of the kingdom, but how this, the kingdom is hidden from many and they cannot understand it. He talks about the way that the kingdom is uh, taken away from some and given to others and that people have been searching and longing for it, that some people are fit for the kingdom and some people are not fit. Now, when you, when you kind of step back and you try to sort of put all those things together, um, it, it's, it gets a little bit complicated, but one thing that becomes very clear is that um, when it comes to the kingdom of God, human beings have no direct control or purchase on the kingdom. We can't grasp it. It's not something that we can, in a sense, grasp. The kingdom is a reality that comes about because of God's actions and initiative in the world. Kingdom, again, is it's God's ruling presence. And that's not something we can just kind of grab hold of and direct where we we wish, which is part of the elusiveness. So, um, and I think this reality of kingdom, it kind of runs up against, I think, a popular ways that we have become accustomed to talking about the kingdom in church circles, right? Especially as it relates to mission. A lot of times you've probably heard this, that, you know, as a mission, we're, we're, we're building the kingdom. We're building the kingdom, or we're helping bring the kingdom in the city of Milwaukee. But, um, you never find that language. Jesus never talks about building the kingdom or bringing the kingdom. Because again, the kingdom is not graspable. Now, I think the intent of those ways of talking about ministry, it's meant to sort of capture a holistic sense and that justice and peace and all that matters. And that's very true. So the intent is right. But I think that when we talk about building the kingdom, bringing the kingdom, it really distorts how radical the kingdom is. And it easily becomes this domesticated reality in which, you know, again, we're talking about doing kingdom work. And oftentimes, and I see this in churches many times, where kingdom basically equals a political platform on the right or on the left. Certain social polities. 
But the kingdom of God is not a reality that comes into being because of our hard work or effort. The kingdom of God is a radically theocentric reality. It's God-centered. It is God-centered, and it only becomes manifest in the world through divine initiative and grace. So, the two questions then are, well, then how does, it, how does it come about, and what does it bring about? And that's what we'll sort of, you know, close, look at here as we come back to our text. How does the kingdom come about then if we can't bring it? It, come about, it comes about through the person of Jesus. Look at uh, the Isaiah passage from our text again. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me and has anointed me. Uh, in Luke's gospel, where this story comes is right after Jesus' baptism. And in his baptism, he is anointed visibly with the Holy Spirit, comes down upon him. And just to make sure that we don't miss the point that, Jesus, that Luke is trying to make, he even tells us that Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Right, so, so in Luke's gospel, the anointing is the baptism. And so here we have servant of the Lord of which this Isaiah text points to, right? But what's most remarkable is that when Jesus reads this, this passage from Isaiah, his single sermon sentence is simply, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All those promises that you've been hearing about your whole life, have you heard this text read from Isaiah? They've been fulfilled today. Today which is really remarkable to think about. What is Jesus saying? The kingdom has arrived. But what exactly does he mean by today? Because, I mean, it, you know, clearly, as we know, it's not like Jesus snapped his fingers and all of a sudden all the poor, all the oppressed, all the captives, all those who are blind, you know, are recovered. So what does he mean by today? I think the significance of that phrase, today, is the way in which Jesus wants us to know that I'm present and that the kingdom is inseparable from me. And I think this is so important, right? The kingdom of God is not separable from the person of Jesus. He brings the kingdom. You can't have the kingdom without Jesus. I mean, that's part of the problem that happened in Nazareth, is that they wanted the kingdom. They wanted all the blessings, all the things that, that, that the Isaiah text promises, but they didn't want Jesus, Right? Because that's the thing they, they begin to focus on. Wait, this is the son of Joseph. And how come he's not doing all his miracles here? And this leads to offense. They cannot embrace him. Kingdom, yes. Jesus, no. And I think it's the same problem we have today, right? We're tempted. We want the fruits of the kingdom, but we don't want Jesus. But the fruit of the kingdom only comes about in our lives when we embrace Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth. So that's the, the, the answer to the first question is that the kingdom comes about only through Jesus. It's inseparable from him and his presence. But what does the kingdom bring? What's the good news of the kingdom? I want to draw your attention here back to, to the Isaiah passage. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So this passage is so important because it, it's basically the agenda of Jesus' ministry. 
And if, as, you, as you read on, as we'll see, up to you know, when he reaches Jerusalem and, and is arrested and put on trial and crucified, everything in between is Jesus executing these promises through healing, through exorcism, through preaching, through forgiving. All these different things are, are basically played out here. So this is Jesus' agenda. And it's really the gospel in a nutshell, <laughs> a big nutshell. And it's kingdom-sized. And I, I don't, we're, we're going to have an opportunity to explore each of these uh, domains or dimensions of the gospel in the weeks to come. But I, I want to give you a big picture of that gospel because it's big. It's not small. It is big. So the first thing that Jesus says is the gospel is good news for the poor. Good news for the poor. And poor in this ca- context is not simply, uh, it's a big category. It's, it also includes those who are identified as the captives, um, those who are blind, those who are oppressed. Everybody in that, that whole verse refers to poor. Poor is not uh, just an economic category. But I think that in, when we read this text, one of the debates that often happens around this, the meaning of this text is, well, who are the poor exactly? Now, is Luke just referring to the economically poor, the literal physical poor, or is it more something like the spiritually poor, like you're poor in spirit? And the answer is that it's neither and it's both. It's both together. It's the physically poor and the spiritually poor. And I think that even when we, our way as modern people of asking that question presumes a very dualistic world, a world that's sort of broken between the material realities and the physical reality, or, or the spiritual realities, right? And we're like, well, we've got to fit this either spiritual or material. But the reality of, of Jesus' proclamation of the gospel, and this is so important for the kingdom, is it's not, it's both and. It's the integration of the spiritual and the material. When Jesus, it's good news for the real poor, people who materially and physically experience poor, but the alleviation of their poverty isn't simply that they are given an economic uplift. It's actually that it addresses as well their spiritual condition and the spiritual conditions of poverty. See, there is an integration of the material and the spiritual, the visible and the invisible. Again, it's kingdom-sized gospel that refuses to split these things apart. And again, I think, you know, and in, in for the past hundred years in Protestant Christianity in America, there's been this tug-of-war where you have conservatives that tend to want to say, well, the gospel, it's spiritual. It's for, about the forgiveness of sins and how you're right with God. It's not a social gospel. But this is a diminishment of the gospel. It is that. But then on the other side, in the sort of liberal mainline thing, it's, well, the gospel is, it's social. It's a, it's a program for political and social liberation. And to a certain extent, it is. But it's not just that. That's a reduction of the gospel as well. See, the gospel is both together. And actually, when you put them together, the spiritual and the material, it actually cuts across liberal, conservative, blue state, red state, all those things. It mixes it up makes it very difficult to categorize the gospel in terms of any earthly polity. Jesus' ministry is a ministry of word and deed. Now, so that's the first point, and the, the next ones are briefer. But, but this is a point that I think is so important as, you, as we go through the gospel of Luke, and we see how Jesus heals and how he combines word and deed together. And it, it really, this principle applies as well to the other uh, categories here. So, Uh, Good news to the poor. 
and release of the captives. So that second dimension or domain of the good news is liberty or release from captives. Uh, when Isaiah wrote this, um, that referred specifically to, it was written to people who were in exile. And the fulfillment of that promise would have been basically the people had been set free from captivity in Babylon and are able to go back to, to Israel. And uh, this is the most metaphoric, I think, uh, way that, of, of these terms for Luke. But when Luke talks about um, release or liberty, um, Jesus often uses this in terms of forgiveness, right? That sin is like being in debt, and the debt is so big that you'll never, ever be able to pay it off, and it just weighs you down. And Jesus brings release in the form of forgiveness that sets us free from the weight of sin that holds us down. And this is such an important part of, of the gospel, and it's, it's the front line, really, of the kingdom of God. God forgives. He forgives. He takes the weight of sin off so that you can live a new life. So there's good news for the poor, there's liberty for the captives, and there's healing for the blind. That's the third aspect, that the gospel brings healing. It does address our physical realities. And what you see in the healing of the blind here, and this refers not just healing the blind, but all kinds of healings, Jesus heals literal blind people in the gospels, right? But blindness is also a metaphor, and light and sight is a metaphor for spiritual darkness or unbelief and also seeing. So, again, there's this interaction here between the physical and the spiritual, where Jesus, he, he heals. And I think the really important thing here as a, as a principle is that the gospel heals. It transforms. It's not just something for after we die. It really brings healing to our lives here and now. And the fourth, the fourth point that Luke makes, or that the Isaiah makes, is uh, liberty for the oppressed. So you have good news for the poor, forgiveness of sins, healing of the blind, and liberty for the oppressed. And what this promise is, is, is particularly directed to the way in which we can have freedom from those things that oppress us, from real enemies, the enemies that are within us and the enemies that are without. And that Jesus brings liberation and true freedom. And the way you see this manifested most in Jesus's ministry is through his, uh, as he confronts the demons and exercises the demons, which oppress people. They sort of, it's a spiritual force that takes people bondage, but it always manifests itself in physical, material kinds of ways. And the gospel addresses this as well. Friends, the gospel is good news for the poor. It is good news for the oppressed. It is good news for those who are weighed down by shame and guilt. It is good news for those with broken bodies and broken minds. It brings healing. It brings forgiveness. It brings freedom. It brings blessing. I mean, I didn't talk about it, but the year of the Lord's favor, what is that? That is the blessing of God at work in the world, that Jesus promises to bring God's blessing, the year of the Lord's favor. Friends, this is a comprehensive gospel. It is a kingdom-sized gospel. So, how big is your gospel? <laughs> That's what I want to close with. How big is your gospel? Do you have a gospel that is big enough to address all of the different pains, all the different afflictions, 
all the different things that preoccupy you and keep you down. Does your gospel, is it big enough for this? Is your gospel big enough to address the problems in your marriage? Is your gospel big enough to deal with the loneliness, with the depression in your life? Is your gospel big enough to deal with your deep unhappiness in your career or your state of life? Is your gospel big enough to deal with the addictions of your life? Is it big enough to deal with your anger (laughs) or your shame or your guilt? Is it big enough to deal with the realities of real evil in the world, racism, injustice, crushing poverty and war? Is your gospel big enough to deal with these things? See, when we have a miniaturized gospel that we've reduced in size, these things overwhelm us (laughs) and sometimes crush us. Or they drive us to look for answers and solutions in all kinds of different places. And I think that many of us here, and I want you to consider, what is that thing in my life that afflicts me and that I don't understand or it doesn't seem like the gospel is really that relevant? What is that thing? And friends, what I want to tell you is this. There's a gospel for that. (laughs) I mean, there's no problem that you have that faces you, (laughs) no complex situation in which there is not a gospel to respond and answer to it. And the reason that is true is because Jesus Christ came as not just the Son of the Most High, He came as the Son of Joseph. He was flesh and bone. He suffered as you suffer. He was tempted as you were tempted. And He died... (laughs) as we all will someday die. And he was victorious. And the gospel is us entering into his life and living through that. And in doing that, we enter his kingdom. And we can believe that he can liberate us. Let's pray. Amen. Lord, uh, we give you thanks for your gospel. And I, I just pray today that we would, um, we, would, we would believe that your gospel is big enough and wide enough and deep enough and profound enough to address any and every challenge and affliction and weight that bears down upon us. I pray uh, that you would um, show us how that works, Lord, and help us to turn our hearts uh, towards Jesus and to trust him. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.